Well, I get to introduce my, uh, my brother-in-law, uh, Titus, Dr. Kennedy, I should call him Dr. Kennedy, but uh, has uh, a lot of experience in the world of uh, archaeology, so he is a professional field archaeologist, so if you think Indiana Jones, you're probably on the right track. Uh, he uh, got his undergrad at Biola, master's at University of Toronto, and doctoral degree at the University of South Africa. Did I get that right? In Pretoria? Uh, he, I'm just going off memory here. He, he reads a lot of different old languages, some of which are dead, I think, even languages. But um, Hebrew, Greek, Akkadian? I get that. What else? What am I missing? Some Egyptian? Egyptian hieroglyphics? Uh, so, anyway. Um, Really smart guy. Uh, we, of course, know him as, as Uncle Titus and Titus, so uh, there's that. He has written a couple of books, uh, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, uh, and the subtitle, The, Ar the Archaeology and History of, uh, of Christ and the Gospels. Thank you. And then Unearthing the Bible. Um, 101 Archaeological Discoveries That Bring the Bible to Life. You can get both of those books on Amazon, so uh, if you want to support Titus and his work, uh, feel free to buy those. You also have a nonprofit, which I can't pronounce the name of. Archi Archivus? Okay. So it's a nonprofit organization that helps uh, fund his, his research. Um, he travels a ton, I know, uh, around the world visiting various museums, does some archaeological digging. Uh, he speaks around the country. Um, He's, he's often gone and, and speaking at other churches and conferences, and he's been on the radio, various national syndicated radio shows. Um, so anyway, very happy to have him pinch hit for us today with Mike being gone. So uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Titus Kennedy. Thanks, Nathan. What? What? Oh, one, one game? Yeah, I got, probably got a few lucky catches or something. All right, well, good to see you all. Some familiar faces, some new faces. Jordan's not here. I'll have to take a selfie and send it to him. <laughs> so you have been studying 1 Samuel. Just started a series on that very recently. So this morning, we are going to look at the historical context of the book of Samuel, and hopefully that will help everybody as you go through this book to visualize the ancient setting and to understand the cultural and historical context and bring it, bring it to life a little bit more and make the interpretation a bit easier. So before we jump into that, Let's just open with a word of prayer. Ah, okay. Great. All right. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we can meet here today to worship you and to study your word and fellowship together. I uh, thank you for your word and the many lessons that you teach us through it and that these things are true events that we can apply 
to our lives, not just uh, fables and fairy tales. And I pray that you would guide me as I teach this morning and, and help this information and our study of the Bible to help us all grow in our spiritual lives and increase our knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Samuel is the name of this book, although this is something that isn't applied to the name of the book if you look in every ancient Bible. For example, if you looked at the Septuagint, that's the, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, they actually called the books of Samuel first and second kings. And so then they had first and second kings as third and fourth kings. But the, the Hebrew designation there associates it with Samuel. And you probably talked about this already, but obviously Samuel didn't write both of first and second Samuel. He didn't write all of it because we see that he actually dies. His death is recorded near the end of first Samuel. But it is nevertheless centered on him and his, his role in starting uh, the monarchy of Israel. And so that name is, is given to designate it. And his name means something like God heard. And this seems to apply to 1 Samuel verse 20, chapter 1, verse 20. It says, it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. So like many biblical names, they have meanings that are often associated with the circumstances around their birth or uh, their location, their parents, and various things connected to their life. But what about the text of Samuel? Uh, when was this written? How old of the manuscripts do we currently have? When we're looking at our English Bible today, you know, how did, how did they translate this? Where did this come from? Well, for Samuel, like so many of the Old Testament books, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was very, very important. Uh, before these were discovered, we had a manuscript, or actually two manuscripts, from about the 900s and 1000 AD that were the Hebrew manuscripts of this book. So not that long ago, really, really late. And then we had some Greek manuscripts that had been translated earlier than that, but they still weren't going back, way back into the time of Samuel. But then when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, they had among those a copy or copies of the book of Samuel that were copied down, written down around the third century BC. So, you know, this would be a copy of a copy of a copy, but it pushed the date back for the manuscript in Hebrew about 1300 years. That's a huge difference. And then when these were compared, when this, this third century BC was compared to the 1080 edition, we can see that it's almost exactly the same. Most of the differences we see are things like uh, vocabulary or a spelling difference, some word order, grammar, stuff like that. Uh, there's no significant variance that would affect theological teachings. And what, is, so what does that tell us? Uh, not only does it tell us that what we have translated into English is reliable, it's 
the Bible as it was written, but it tells us that the copying tradition was so good that we can, we can assert, we can imply that the scrolls we have now, those, are, those were recording what was first written down in the time of Samuel and David, all right? The copying tradition was so precise. They would go through and analyze every single letter and make sure it was in the right place. So we know the text didn't change over time. Our, our text as we have it is what was written down. That is the main takeaway there. Well, during the time of Samuel, we get the monarchy of Israel established. So just a quick historic overview of what's going on here. Samuel himself, he's born somewhere around 1100 BC, maybe a little bit earlier. We don't have an exact date, but we can kind of figure it out from clues in the Bible. And he has his parents, Elkanah and Hannah, and we're told that he is actually connected to the line of Levi. So we see that he plays a role of priest, among other things. He also, of course, uh, was a prophet and a leader. But he lived in the Judges period initially. So if you've read through the book of Judges, you see how different things functioned politically and culturally as compared to the time of the monarchy, like David and Solomon and Hezekiah and so forth. So Samuel actually bridges these two different periods of ancient Israel's history. Then Saul becomes the first king of Israel while Samuel is alive. Samuel has a role in that. And this is the first time that Israel has a king that unites all 12 of the tribes. So the judges, they were localized leaders. Now they've got a king over everyone. And Saul starts his reign as king in about 1050 BC. All right, so Samuel is roughly 50, 60 years old at this time. He's, he's starting to become an old man. And then who comes next? David, of course. So there's a lot of focus on both Saul and David in the books of Samuel. And David had this 40-year reign. And as you go through the book of Samuel, you will see that he starts his reign and yet he isn't king over everything and everywhere all at once. 38 years then over all of Israel, but only 33 years from Jerusalem because he has to go and conquer that capital. So his reign is kind of broken up. You know, 40 years is a nice clean number there, but he's got some different uh, levels of rulership going on through that reign. And then what's he do after he conquers Jerusalem? Well, we read in 2 Samuel that he builds a palace there. And we're going to look at some of the ruins of that. And he gets help from this Phoenician king who was based in Tyre, the city of Tyre. And we also read that David established what's called the House of David. And this is a significant phrase we're also going to look at and, and see some archaeological inscriptions connected to. So that appears multiple times throughout the Old Testament, starting in 2 Samuel. And this house of David phrase essentially means it's a dynasty of David. So David starts a new dynasty and the kings of Israel then are connected to that. They are descended from him. 
since we're looking at some of the archaeology, I'll just throw this out there that this period would be called the Iron Age. And specifically, when we're looking at Samuel, Saul, David, we're looking at this transition from the first to the second part of the Iron Age. So we actually are able to distinguish the time of Samuel, Saul, and David in archaeology, in things like pottery and architecture. So it's not, it's not just all us reading the text and trying to see does anything connect to this place geographically. We can actually see you know, what's from the time period of those particular kings and prophets. Here's a map to give us some geographic context. So you can see on this map that it's actually uh, cutting the northern and southern kingdoms just so you can understand when that break actually occurs. But you see the dark green and then the really bright green. So that is going to be the kingdom of Israel. So when Samuel is ruling as a judge, that's the entire land. He's not over all of it, but Saul then does become king over essentially all of it. And David, yes, definitely, as he conquers Jerusalem. If you look in the southwest there, you can see this little strip of land that's where the Philistines lived. And you're going to read about a lot of battles and problems with the Philistines. So they were southwest on the southwestern border of Israel. And they were, they were there for a long time. You know, it takes a while for the Israelites to defeat them. And, and they really uh, don't even vanish from history until like the time of Nehemiah, basically. And you can see some of the other kingdoms that are dealt with. There's the kingdom of Ammon to the east. So Ammon, Jordan gets its name from that. See on the eastern side of the Jordan and David has some battles over there. You see Moab and Moab, occasionally they have some, some battles there with Moab. We're gonna look at an artifact from Moab. And then northeast you have Aram, the Arameans. And we also will look at an artifact from there. All right. so. That's the geography. Now, what about their daily life? What did it look like? Most of the people lived in villages. So this was not an urbanized culture. They were primarily agricultural. So they are farming, they are shepherding. They're doing things like uh, harvesting wheat and barley and they're growing grapes and olives and they have sheep and cattle and goats. All right, so they aren't, they aren't getting concentrated into one big city really until uh, the time of Solomon. You know, Jerusalem wasn't a huge city and really never became what we might think of as, as a metropolis. But in the time of Solomon, you, you see a transition a bit. So mostly rural people living in villages. Here's what their villages look like. On the left, you can see it, this sort of oval circular structure. So they would take their houses and they would build their houses right next to each other and they would do this sort of circling the wagons type of technique, like in the Old West. Why did they do that? Well, they needed some protection and some kind of wall or fence, but to build an actual city wall separately takes a lot of manpower and resources that they just didn't have or, or couldn't dedicate their time and their resources to. So they used their houses to build this kind of simple makeshift type of wall. 
And so all these villages could have a little bit of protection uh, without having to, to undertake this massive architectural endeavor that would take you know, 10 years or something. So the Canaanites, who some of them were still living in the land, uh, but their earlier cities, they did build these massive walls. And you can see a lot of them today still. I mean, stone blocks that are this big to build the wall with. Israelites really didn't do that except uh, in a few places. And mostly this happens like the time of Solomon and on. There's a house on the right. So this is looking at it from the top down. It's a, obviously not a photograph, but it's an archeological drawing. But hopefully you can see the partitions here. So we call this the four room house and I'll show you a model of it. But so there's one, two, three, four partitions there. Okay. Uh, this, this house has an entrance here apparently, but a lot of times it was right in the middle. These little dots represent pillars that are holding up the second story. So this was essentially a courtyard and you could bring the animals in here at night. And then over on these sides, you might have uh, your industrial activities, kind of the, the home family business. If they're making pottery or they're baking bread or they're doing weaving, that's where that would happen on the ground floor. And then back here, you often had an area for storage and then there would be a, either a staircase or a ladder somewhere and that would take you up to the second floor and that's where the bedrooms were. So they're up higher, they're a little bit more protected and then they would also have a balcony and, and sort of a rooftop that they would use too. So two-story houses with a rooftop and they basically followed the same plan for ancient Israel all the time from the time of the judges until the Babylonians destroyed the kingdom of Judah and lots of the people were gone. We find the same architectural plan. Some people think that this, this house plan had something to do with the Mosaic law. Remember the Mosaic law had lots of rules about purity, ritual purity. And if you were ritually impure, you didn't want to spread that to other people. And if you were ritually clean, you didn't want to come into contact with something that was impure. Well, the layout of these houses allowed them to avoid colliding with each other. So you see here, here's the entrance. Now pretend that you are someone who is ritually unclean. You don't want to pollute the rest of the house, right? So you can come into the courtyard. So this is, this is an outdoor area right here, essentially. You can come into the courtyard and from the courtyard, you can actually access any room of the house, any part of the house. And so they didn't have to walk through various people's rooms or wherever they were sitting, working, sleeping in order to get to their destination. If you look at a Canaanite house, it's arranged differently. You basically have to pass through every different room if you're going to the back of the house. So it's, it's a possibility, but we don't know for sure because it's never stated in any ancient text that, you know, we built a house in accordance with the Mosaic law, but it's plausible. This is a model here, so you can see. So here's the outer courtyard. Here's those pillars. Uh, you can see there's some industrial stuff going on in here. There's some animals. And then up, up top, uh, bedroom, there's some weaving in here. And then see there's a ladder going to the roof again. And then this is an ancient model. 
actually built around the time of the judges period. So you can see that two-story house. They'd have a balcony area out here and then again also a rooftop. So maybe not as primitive as we might think. Now within each of these villages or cities, if they had some kind of protective area, a wall, houses arranged like that, they would also have a gate. And this is something that they could close at night to keep predators from coming in or to keep robbers from being able to easily come in. So they're closing the fence on their house or their community basically. But the gate wasn't just there for protection, it was used for other things as well. Uh, two, two basic things, one was commerce and the other was for city meetings or community meetings. And we see things like this talked about in the book of Samuel. So 2 Samuel 15.2 and 19.8 are a couple examples of this. Uh, we'll just look at 2 Samuel 15.2, so you can see this. It says, and Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. So this is an example of Absalom taking a leadership role at the city gate. So people would go there to try to settle disputes or they would have town meetings. And this, uh, this is a tradition that continued on for many centuries throughout ancient Israel, but we see it starting in the time of the judges and, and then uh, Samuel. Ruth is another book that's right around this time where this also happens. So uh, what did this look like? Well, we have a very, very good example that was excavated at the city of Dan in northern Israel. So this is just at the gate of that city. You can see the stone wall behind it, but you see this little platform with those two steps. And they would, they would put a seat or a chair on that platform. And then you see these little round post holes there. So they had some kind of awning or covering that would go over it. So the judge, uh, the king, if he was visiting, city leaders, they would sit there and then people would come up to them and say, here's my problem or here's our dispute. Can you solve this? We, we read about Solomon doing some of this also. And then uh, if they needed to have a, a meeting, a community meeting about something, they could all gather there too, and the elders would come to the gate. So that is what it looked like. Another interesting thing about this period is that they had a, a special type of weight. And you might think, okay, it's, they've got a rock, they've got a stone weight, what's, what's important about that? <clears throat> This, this I find really interesting because it illustrates how archaeology can help us to better understand and even more accurately translate the text of the Bible. But this also, this particular find, factors into the date of composition for the book of Samuel, showing us that, that it was written down early. 
that it wasn't composed like some kind of fairy tale 500 years later, which is what a lot of modern scholars say today. So in 1 Samuel 13, 21, we've got this rather obscure verse. And depending on your translation today, it would read, and the charge was two thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. All right, so it's talking about prices related to agricultural tools. But if you look at, at a much older Bible translation, you will notice it's different. It, it does not say anything about two thirds of a shekel in there. Like if you go to the King James, for example, or, or really any uh, translation before the 20th century, they just had to guess because they didn't know this particular word. The Hebrew word is pim. And they just had to try to figure out what it was based on context. It doesn't appear anywhere else. And we had no inscriptions, no archeological artifacts associated with it. But then as more sites were getting excavated in Israel at Gezer, they discovered one of these weights and it was inscribed in ancient Hebrew with the word pim on it. And they took it and they put it on a scale and they found that it weighed two thirds of a shekel. So then they knew what it was. And you know, since that first discovery, many, many more have been found. So there's no question as to what it is. But the thing is, this, only, this weight only comes from one specific time period in Israel's history. It, it went out of use in the divided kingdom period. So, you know, post Solomon sometime. And that's why we never see it mentioned again in the Bible. And that's why uh, even ancient translations of the Bible didn't even know what it was. Like the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was done in the third century BC, they didn't even know what it was then. So what's that tell us? That whoever put together the book of Samuel and wrote the book of Samuel, which might've been multiple people, they actually lived in this united monarchy period around the time of Samuel and Saul and David. Otherwise, they would have had no idea what, what the PIM was. They wouldn't have even put it in there because it didn't exist later on. By the way, in, in terms of authorship of Samuel, uh, Samuel probably wrote part, part of the books of Samuel and, you know, or at least compiled evidence but we have a passage in 1 Chronicles 29, 29 that might give us a little insight into this. It says, now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. So it sounds like Chronicles is telling us that there were multiple authors there who, who put together all the material and then they just put it in one volume because it concerned the rise of the Davidic monarchy. Another inscription that gives us some more insight into daily life there is called the Gezer calendar. It was found at the same site as this Pimweit, so really important site. Uh, this city was one of the three outside of Jerusalem that Solomon did extensive building at. So there are a lot of important discoveries that are made there. 
but this is a limestone tablet and it's inscribed there with archaic Hebrew, dates to about the 10th century BC. And at one point in time, this was the oldest Hebrew inscription that had ever been discovered. So it was very, very important just in that regard. Now we have some older Hebrew inscriptions than this, but, but it's still important because it gives us this calendar. It tells us about the ancient Israelite calendar and about what they did. And we can see how much of an agricultural society it was. So here's a, a translation of it. It says, two months of harvest, two months of sowing, two months of late growth, one month of cutting flax, one month of barley, one month of measuring, two months of pruning the field, one month of fruit harvest. So we can see what their agricultural activities were throughout the year because of this. And I've got some references up there where you can see in the Bible uh, the connections to these different agricultural activities that are listed. We know that the Israelites used the 12-month calendar, uh, not just from this document, but it's also clear in the Bible. And it was based around agriculture, and of course it was also uh, calibrated to the, the moon. But the months, we, we know most of them, but not all of them. Uh, for example, we don't know the names of months four and five. Maybe we'll find them in an inscription someday, but you can see 12-month calendar, everything centered around agriculture. So rural agricultural type of society is what they are living in. Well, during the time of Samuel, you also had worship centered at the tabernacle, still at the tabernacle, not at the temple yet. That's going to come about as you read through the book of Samuel. The temple materials will get collected and then the temple uh, will eventually pass to Solomon who will complete it in 1 Kings. But the, the tabernacle was sitting at Shiloh for over 300 years. It was there for a really long time. It was probably some kind of semi-permanent structure by the time of Samuel and Saul. That is, they probably had uh, stone walls or uh, stone posts and things like that they would use, but they never apparently built a structure until the temple, still making it out of a tent. Well, Shiloh is, is one of these many sites that has also been excavated. And so we know a little bit more about it and some connections to the biblical text and the time of Samuel. This is an example of the tabernacle. So this was a recreation that was done and placed in southern Israel, kind of in the, a wandering area so that people could see what a life-size tabernacle would have looked like. On the right there are some walls from the site of Shiloh. And Shiloh doesn't have a huge amount of architectural remains to look at that are really impressive, but there have been a number of discoveries there that are helpful for understanding the time of Samuel. One is that there's this huge area that seems to accommodate the tabernacle perfectly. That is, it is exactly uh, the right dimensions, rectangular, for the tabernacle, plus an extra area right in front of the tabernacle where people would have come to bring their sacrifices and prepare those before they were taken in and then 
uh, offered by the priests. We also have a lot of pottery, like at many sites, that tells us that, yes, people were living in Shiloh in the time of the judges, and that's also the time when they had this tabernacle area. But probably the most interesting thing that's been found so far is this huge pile of animal bones, sacrificed animal bones, put into a big trash pile, essentially. And when those bones were examined and they found all the species that they belonged to, they found that all of them were from clean animals. So no unclean animals in these sacrifices. What's that tell us? It was Israelites there sacrificing according to the Mosaic law. It wasn't a Canaanite site where they were sacrificing pigs and other things that, that were not considered clean according to the Mosaic law. Uh, talking about writing again. So uh, an earlier criticism of the book of Samuel and others in that time period, Ruth, Judges, etc., was that there's no way these could have been written around the time of Samuel because Israelites were illiterate at that time. And many, many years ago, we didn't have as much archaeological material to really demonstrate counter to that assertion, but now we do. We have so many inscriptions, uh, Hebrew inscriptions from around the time of Samuel. So I'll just show you a couple more. This is called the Zayat Stone. It was found at a little town, not a big city, called Tel Zayat. So again, this is not a, this is not a regional capital or any kind of center of learning. It's just a little village out there, a little town out there. And it's got this, this long uh, alphabetic script there carved into the stone. And this is from around the time of David, uh, Saul, David, Samuel there. Then we've got another one that was more recently discovered in Jerusalem. So this is actually on a big, huge storage jar. And so they inscribed Hebrew into the clay and it was recording the contents of the jar, which would have been wine. Probably, this one particularly was probably wine, but they also use these big storage jars for olive oil and for grain. So there's a lot of inscriptions. We'll even look at one more later on. But what does this tell us? That people were, in, in ancient Israel, were very capable of reading and writing. Maybe not everybody, but there were certainly enough people that were literate that the scholars or the scribes of the culture could have written down the book of Samuel. No issue whatsoever with that. We can see that archaeologically. Now, in 1 Samuel 4 through 7, we have this really interesting narrative where the Ark of the Covenant is stolen by the Philistines. And it makes its rounds to these different cities. And then eventually, uh, the, the Philistines, they keep being struck with things by God. And so they just decide, we've got to get rid of this thing. Send it back to the Israelites. So it makes its way back to the Israelites. But there's, a, there's an inscription on this piece of pottery uh, found at the site of Ebenezer. Actually, Ebenezer is mentioned in 1 Samuel 4, verse 1. Okay, so it was a city that 
ancient Israelites lived in at the time of Samuel. <clears throat> and it was found in a grain silo. So it somehow someone had thrown it in there like a hundred years later. So this is from the 11th century BC. So again, this is the time of Samuel, Saul, and David. And on it, it seems to be this little summary of the events of 1 Samuel 4 through 7. And, and it was probably just a school exercise. This is not a professional scribe. It was probably a kid who was learning how to write. And so he writes this really brief narrative here. And there have been a couple of translations offered, but I'll, I'll just give you one here. It says, to a field we came, Aphek from Shiloh. Okay, so these are some of the different cities. Aphek was at the border of Philistia and Judah. The Kittim, so that is uh, another name for the Philistines, took it to Azor, Dagon, Baal of Ashdod, Gath, Yarim, or Kiriath Yarim, as it's usually listed in the Bible. Okay, so he's got these different locations, and it even mentions the god Dagon, Baal of Ashdod, one of the main Philistine cities. Then, then it talks about, it says, a fellow countryman of the soldiers, and there's this word that we don't know what this word is, but it's talking about some soldiers and fellows. Then there's a name, a personal name, Hophni. All right? Hophni and Phinehas were brothers. They appear in the book of Samuel. And they actually both die. Uh, came to report to the elders, a horse came on it, a brother to bury. So some people think that this might be talking about uh, Phinehas having died. And Hophni is saying something about that. So not only does this show literacy, in the time of Samuel, in one of the cities that's mentioned in the book, but it seems even to be uh, an Israelite summary of some of the, the travels of the ark, if you will. Well, eventually Saul becomes king, and Saul is not situated in Jerusalem. That was never his capital. He didn't take it over, but he did have a capital near Jerusalem, and that was at Gibeah. So Gibeah, we know a little bit about this. Unfortunately, there's this modern building that was constructed there. They started construction during the time that Jordan had control of this area. Uh, and they built right on top of the ancient fortress palace. So you can't really see much of it today, but because there was some archaeology that was done earlier and some photographs, we can, we can look at that. But here's a, an old aerial photo of it. So you see there's this big hill, basically, out there. And this is a perfect place to put a fortress. You're elevated. So they built this fortress at Gibeah of Saul, just north of Jerusalem. And then here from the archaeology, we have a better idea of what it looked like originally. So it was this square-shaped fortress with big, huge towers at each corner. But they weren't just uh, lookout towers or fortification towers. It seems like these were actually the rooms of the palace, so to speak, because it looks like the interior, the main interior, was totally blank. And why would that be? So there's another fortress palace like this that's found in Israel later on at Jezreel. Uh, that was Ahab and Jezebel. They lived there. It also was constructed in a similar way, 
and we think that the chariots of Ahab were stationed there. So Saul probably used this to garrison his troops and supplies, and then he just had his main rooms in the corner. So if, if he had any kind of throne room or something, it was probably at one of the main corner buildings there. Maybe that southwestern one seems to be the biggest. And then the picture on the bottom, that is a photograph of some of the preserved walls. So you can see it actually has pretty good stone architecture for the period. It's, it's a lot nicer than many of the buildings. Here's a really weird story. So in 1 Samuel 18, 17 through 27, we read about David before he's king. Saul is still king. And initially Saul says that David can marry one of his daughters. But then, then he ends up giving her in marriage to another guy. So we're told next that David and Michal fall in love. And Saul says, okay, you can get married. He has bad motives for this. He wants to to use his daughter to entrap David and then get him killed. But, but he tells David, all right, uh, you can marry my daughter. I don't want a dowry. So he, traditionally they would, they would pay a dowry. He didn't want money. He said, instead, go out and kill a hundred Philistines and bring me their foreskins and then you can marry my daughter. It's really, really strange sounding. Well, you read the narrative and, and actually what David does is he goes and kills 200 Philistines and brings the foreskins. So he, he doubled the price. But you might ask, where in the world does this weird practice come from? Like, is this, is this realistic at all? Like, did anyone do this? Well, we find out that the Egyptians actually were doing this a little bit before the time of Saul. And maybe that's where he got the idea from. <clears throat> so there was a, a practice that's really well attested in ancient Egypt where the, the soldiers or the commanders would bring the Pharaoh either severed hands or foreskins of the enemy to show like, this is how many guys I killed. I did a really good job now. Promote me or give me a bonus. And, and that's what they would often do. So we have some uh, Egyptian wall carvings here and on the left, it shows this pile of hands. And then on the right, it shows this pile of foreskins. So yes, it was happening. Uh, we even have archeological evidence of it beyond these uh, wall inscriptions in the form of a bunch of skeletal remains of hands that were put in a pile that were found in Egypt. So we know this was happening. Saul probably just adopted this, this uh, thing from the Egyptians, but you know, why, why the foreskins? Why not the hands, right? Well, <clears throat> the Philistines did not practice circumcision. The Israelites did practice circumcision. So he knew that David couldn't just go like find some dead bodies in Israel and then chop those off and bring them to the king. He would have to actually go fight some Philistines. Well, with the Egyptians, it was, it was pretty similar because the Egyptians actually practice a form of circumcision too, so they could also tell like who was an Egyptian and who was their enemy. So really strange thing, but it happened, and it happened uh, starting you know, even before the time of Saul. So strange details, but the biblical text there is getting it right. Now, what about David? 
and archaeological evidence for him. In the 1980s, most archaeologists and ancient historians were starting to say that they thought David wasn't a historical figure because we had no evidence for his existence outside of the Bible. But then in 1993, while excavating at the site of Dan, where we saw that gate and the chair, they found this broken monument stone called a stele. And it was a a victory inscription of the enemies, their enemies, the Arameans, talking about how they had defeated some of the Israelites. And in a section of it, this Aramean king says that he killed Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel. I killed Ahaziahu, son of Jehoram, king of the house of David. All right, so suddenly we had David mentioned. And, and it's not just the name in some obscure context. It's this phrase, house of David, that we saw earlier appearing in Samuel. And it's associating the house of David as the, the founding of this dynasty of kings. So he's associated with the Israelite kings and they're saying they're coming from his house, from the dynasty of David. And almost immediately that changed the perspective of the vast majority of scholars on this. There were a few who really resisted it. Uh, Some of them were trying to say, oh no, we should translate it differently. It's not talking about David, it's a location or it's saying beloved or something like that. None of those make sense at all. Uh, That's why only a few scholars made that suggestion and, and others, everyone else accepted it. There were even a few guys who initially claimed, oh, we think that this was a forgery, you know, they planted it there. But then, then in subsequent years, as they were continuing to dig in that area, they actually found more pieces of the stele. So now we have even more of this inscription. And it's, it's in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem today. Well, that discovery prompted some additional research on another monumental stone called the Mesha stele. So this was found in Moab. So yet again, enemies of Israel talking about the Israelites and on this, they mention again, the house of David. And both of these are from the ninth century BC. So they're very close to the time of David. They're just the next, the next century after him, the next generations. And they again are from enemies of Israel. Why is that important? Because we know, or we could, we could never assert that this was Israelite propaganda, right? It's the enemies of Israel who are acknowledging that David exists and that he is the founder of this dynasty of Israelite kings. So really solid evidence about the existence and kingship of David there. And then there's another inscription uh, from Egypt from about 925 BC. So this is even earlier. This is just after the death of David. And it might describe a place that's mentioned in 1 Samuel 23:14, which was a, a place that David hid out in the wilderness, in the hill country. And it's, it's been translated as the highland of David. So there's an Egyptologist named Kenneth Kitchen who thinks that uh, this, is, this is that location where David was hiding. Well, before David becomes king though, he fights Goliath in this place called the Valley of Elah. And here's a photo of that valley so you can 
see where some of these locations are. The valley is basically the border between Israel and the land of the Philistines. So we've got a Philistine camp here. We've got an Israelite camp. This is an Israelite fortress city that was discovered and excavated fairly recently. Azika is over here. That is a Philistine city. And then Gath is back there. So Goliath was from Gath. Just give you an idea of what that place looked like. Well, in Gath, something important was discovered connecting to the David and Goliath story. And that is this inscribed piece of pottery called an ostracon. Just means it's a pottery, a piece of pottery with writing on it. It's got two names on it, and one of the names is the name Goliath there. So what does this tell us? It, it doesn't tell us that this is the Goliath of the Bible, but it tells us that the name Goliath was being used in Gath around the time of David and Goliath. 10th century BC or maybe 9th century BC is when this dates to. So it gives historical plausibility to the narrative. They're getting locations right, they're getting names right, they're getting customs right. Um, why are names important like this? Because in ancient times, names were very focused to specific time periods, geographic regions, and linguistic groups. So somebody wouldn't be named Goliath in uh, sixth century kingdom of Judah, for example, or, or in Babylon in the eighth century. You wouldn't find that. So the, the author here, Samuel, maybe Nathan, and whoever else, they are getting these details right. There's another interesting detail of this story, and that's the, the duel that happens between David and Goliath. So this was something that was found in Greek culture or Aegean culture. They called it monomachia, single combat. And sometimes they would have their champions come out in front of the armies and they would fight. And then the winner of that would decide who won the battle rather than having everybody fight each other and kill each other. So that's what we see happening here. But that's not something that was normal practice in ancient Israel or Canaan or Babylon or Egypt. So it's, it shows the, the Greek or the Aegean background of the Philistines, which the Bible tells us they came from places like Crete in the Aegean islands. And that's also archeologically, we know that too. So again, another little detail that the author is getting right. Things that they wouldn't know if they were just making this story up 500 years later. Well, after David becomes king, he tries to conquer Jerusalem. When he gets there, it has exceptional walls and it's situated with valleys on two sides of it. So it's not easy to break into. And the Jebusites actually mock him in 2 Samuel. But he discovers another way in. He goes in through the water tunnel underneath and he pops out and they infiltrate the city. Well, you can actually go see that water tunnel today because it's open up for tourists. Archaeologists found it in the 19th century when they were doing a lot of explorations. And this is, if you've ever been there, this one's different than Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah's tunnel was built later on and changed the course of the water. But this one now is dry. It was an old water tunnel. 
After David conquers Jerusalem, he builds a palace. These are some of the ruins in what we think is the, the palace of David. This was also a fairly recent discovery. And what else did they find here? Uh, so they've, besides the big, huge stone walls, they found a lot of pottery. And the pottery indicated that this huge structure was built right around 1000 BC because the pottery underneath the structure was from the 11th century BC and the pottery on top of the floor was from the 10th century BC. So it's really, really helpful to give us a precision date for the construction of that. Well, that's exactly the time that the book of Samuel tells us that David had that palace built. Uh, some of the other things that they found in there were these little clay stamps that would be made with ring seals that the Israelites used throughout the kingdom period. And they have all sorts of Hebrew inscriptions on them from various officials. Sometimes they mention the name of kings or princes. Uh, actually, nearby, they recently found one of Isaiah the prophet. But that tells us that this building was used by the royal administration until the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. So there's a lot of strong evidence for this being the palace of David. Uh, another, another aspect of that is that they found these column capitals in there that are a Phoenician style and some of the architecture is Phoenician style. And again, we read in Samuel that David got help from Hiram, king of Tyre, this Phoenician king, to build his palace. So all that stuff fits uh, quite well. Hiram, by the way, might be attested on a sarcophagus inscription. So before we get to the, the final part of this, there's, there's something else that comes up today in criticism of the book of Samuel and uh, the Bible's portrayal of the monarchy. And that is, now that most scholars accept that David was a real person and some kind of king, at least that the Israelites looked at, the, the skeptical scholars are, are saying that, fine, David existed, he was sort of a king, but he didn't really have a kingdom as the Bible portrays it. He was just in Jerusalem and he was like a chief with his little tribe. So there are various excavations going on right now that are uncovering things demonstrating a widespread kingdom with a central administration that's able to build big projects and put military outposts around the country. And one of these, probably the most important or, or the most well-known is called the Fortress of Elah or the archaeological site is called Kerbet Kayafa. This is an aerial photo. You can see the, the kind of round structure of the walls there. So it's a big, it's a fortress on the top of a hill. This is on the border. When we looked at the photo of the Valley of Allah, it's just on the Israelite side. It's overlooking the border. And this was built in the 11th century BC, like around the time of Saul. And then it's used into uh, the time of Solomon. It's about 20 kilometers from Jerusalem, so it's in that time it was a, it was a fair distance, all right? So it's on the border. Now, 
just finding this fortress doesn't tell us anything other than, well, somebody spent a lot of time building this, these huge walls and this fortress on top of the hill. But the things that were discovered within the fortress really helped to illuminate who it was and what was going on at the time. And the most important artifact that was discovered in there was this letter, another ostracon, so pottery with writing on it. And this, this letter has some important words and phrases on it. There's, there's some different translations. Uh, they vary slightly because uh, the number, or excuse me, the letters are a bit faded. Uh, it was written in ink. But it, it gives a command. It mentions a judge or judging. It mentions a king, which really is the most important part of it probably. And it's, it's written in Hebrew. So we know that the people who wrote this letter are Hebrews. Uh, it's, it's from a different place. It's probably coming from Jerusalem. The artifacts that were discovered at the site show us that it was an Israelite fortress or city because they have totally different pottery than the Philistines that are right across the valley. They have no pig bones discovered at that site, no unclean animals. There are no idols that were discovered there. There's no horned altars or anything like that. And there's no temple. So none of the stuff that you would normally find at a Canaanite or Philistine site. Instead, it fits with the Israelite material culture plus this Hebrew language letter. Now, here is one of the translations of the text. This one uh, says, do not oppress and serve God. And then there's a break in it, something despoiled someone. The judge and the widow wept. He had the power over the resident alien and the child. He eliminated them together. The men and the chiefs or the officers have established a king. He marked 60 servants among the communities. All right, so there's, there's a king, we see that, and then there's officers under him, and then it's talking about some social and political items. So there obviously is a governmental administration going on at this time with a king, and it is a king who, whose people write in Hebrew and follow the Mosaic law. So it's an Israelite king, tells us that the kingdom of, at the time of David stretched from Jerusalem all the way to the border of the Philistines where this site is located. There, we have other evidence at other sites that help us with that too. Um, by the way, here's some of the walls. You can see they were huge. It took a lot of manpower to put this together. So this is not like your earlier Israelite villages that we looked at. This is a centralized government that is organizing this type of thing to make a border fortress. And the, the name of this site in ancient times might have been Sha'araim, which means two gates, and it is mentioned in 1 Samuel 17, 52. All right, so lots of connections there. Finally, I put this quote here, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Well, if you're a Shakespeare scholar or enthusiast, you know that this is not the right quote from Shakespeare because in Henry IV, he says, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown, but this connects better to the biblical picture and has kind of become a popular saying. It's both literal and figurative in the time of Samuel, Saul, and David. And 
One of the ways that we know about this is because of archaeological discoveries connected to crowns. And then, of course, reading the story, we can see the figurative language. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David goes and he conquers Rabbah, which was the capital of the Ammonites. And it tells us that he took the crown of its king and he, he wears that. Well, this was a ceremonial crown. So there were two different types of crowns that we see in the Old Testament. Uh, if you look at it in Hebrew, there's one, one crown that's called Atara. And this is sort of like a big helmet, like you see in the picture here. And then we have a diadem type of crown. The smaller, thinner one is Nezer. All right, so this is the big helmet crown that he takes. And this photograph here is actually an Ammonite king with a crown. So this tells us exactly what that crown would have looked like that David took. Well, these crowns, we're told, weigh about one talent. So that's 75 pounds. You can see that's crazy to try to wear something that heavy on your head. That's why it was a ceremonial crown. They would not be going into battle wearing this. They would not be walking around the city. They would just be sitting on their throne for a ceremony wearing a type of crown like this. And it, it demonstrates the heaviness of wearing the crown there. And we see that throughout the life of Saul and his tragic life and many of the terrible things that happen while David is king also. So hopefully that helps you to understand the context of Samuel better, what some of these locations look like, uh, what the culture was like, what people were focused on, some of the evidence that demonstrates the historical reliability of Samuel, and what things like these big crowns were like. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and thank you for leaving behind all this material from ancient times that demonstrates the reliability of your word and also helps to open up that world to us so that we can better understand what the places looked like, what the items looked like, what the people looked like, and just bring the Bible to life for us and interpret the text as it was meant to be understood. Uh, pray for our upcoming time of worship, that you would bless that in Jesus' name. Amen.